Turning your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 6, uh, we'll be zeroing in in particular on uh, verse uh, 21. Uh, by, by modern standards, Jesus goes about uh, recruiting and retaining disciples all wrong. Uh, so what he should be doing by modern standards is he should be hyping the, all the benefits of being a disciple of Christ, all, all the good things that come uh, by being uh, one of his followers. And instead, what Jesus emphasizes are the cost. And so, as, as we have seen, uh, he says, blessed are those who are poor. Uh, it's in verse 20. And blessed are those who are hungry in verse 21. And, and now we're going to see, blessed are those who weep uh, and then in verse uh, 22, uh, blessed are, are you when people exclude you and, and you're, you're socially ostracized. Now, we, we clarified uh, that all of these are meant in a spiritual sense. It's spiritual hunger and spiritual poverty that, that's in view. But it's not stated here. It is in Matthew. Matthew clarifies, but Jesus doesn't clarify that in this sermon, at least not immediately. And so it, all the more you know, misguided this seems that such an emphasis is being placed on all of the, the, the demands and the, 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 the demerits of, of being a disciple of, of Christ. Now, he, he does promise uh, for those who are poor the kingdom of God and for those who are hungry that they will have satisfaction, but all that is out there in, in the future somewhere, and in terms of present circumstances, seems highly unlikely. So, it, it does seem to us that Jesus is going about this all wrong. And yet, fact of the matter is, Jesus is the most successful recruiter that there has ever been. Granted, the corporate recruiters and college football recruiters would not be impressed, but nevertheless, he has had more disciples, more followers than any other single individual who has ever lived. Jesus knows what he is doing. And, and so in the next uh, couple of verses, he's going to uh, say, blessed are those who are, who are weeping and sorrowful, and blessed are those who are rejected. The, the weeping, they're going to laugh. The rejected and excluded, they will leap for joy. Uh, today we'll look at the first of these, sorrow, and I want to follow the same format that we did on the previous occasion by asking uh, several questions of what Jesus means by what he is saying. So look at verse 21. Blessed, uh, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. All right, so who are they? Well, in keeping with what we've seen so far, we believe Jesus is talking about those who are spiritually weeping. Uh, blessed are those, who's, those who mourn, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Weeping about what? Weeping about their sin. Now, now I, think that, I think that Christians are surprised uh, when they encounter language like this. I think that uh, uh, much of uh, contemporary Christianity is accustomed to thinking of the Christian life as a, as a, as a life of joviality, uh, that there should always be a, a smile on our face and a song in our heart, uh, we should be untroubled by the world, untouched by the sadness uh, that is out there. And I think many people bring that, bring that mentality into church with them, and they're thinking that uh, 
you know, church would be a place where you get a little encouragement, where you get a little spiritual uplift, and, and uh, that uh, you should be a little happier when you leave than, uh, than, than, than what you get here. But Jesus says, no, oh no, blessed are those who weep. So we better remind ourselves that Jesus himself is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, 3. Uh, that at Gethsemane, he says of himself that he was very sorrowful to the point of death. Luke tells us he was in agony as he prayed. Uh, Hebrews 5, 7 says of Jesus that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. In other words, he's saying that was what was characteristic of his life. Loud cries, tears in, in his prayer life. This was what was characteristic. So even perfected humanity grieves, weeps, never mind flawed humanity. Uh, so what is it about, uh, about the world and, and ourselves that, that causes us to weep? Well, Let's uh, divide this into three categories. Uh, Let's begin with personal sin. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 speaks of godly sorrow. What is godly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow is that which leads us to repent. And so in terms of the Beatitudes, we have this progression from those who are poor in spirit to those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So poverty of spirit leads to a recognition of the need of righteousness and lacking that, uh, it's very natural then, seeing what uh, is missing and to begin to be sad and sorrowful and weep uh, because of it. So this is another one of those characteristics that is at the foundation of the Christian life. Uh, We enter into the Christian life when we understand that we're sinners. Uh, that we understand, when we understand that we fall short of the glory of God, when we understand that we have offended a holy God, and it's then in sorrow for our sin that we repent, and it's that sorrow that then drives us to Christ uh, that we might be saved. So it's certainly at the foundation of the Christian life, and it's in the Christian life as it unfolds. In other words, it's not just at the beginning, but the whole Christian life. As Luther pointed out in his 95 Theses, by the way, Theses number one was that the entire Christian life is a life of repentance so that we continue to see ourselves in our sin, even if we are redeemed sinners and saved sinners, nevertheless we continue to understand that we are sinners and that we need forgiveness. And in the recognition of our sin, there is sadness because of it. So the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am, who can set me free from this body of death? As he, as he recounts his ongoing struggle with sin, he will call himself, 1 Timothy 1.15, the chief of sinners. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.9, he refers to himself as the least of all the apostles and as one who is not fit to be called an apostle. And this isn't false modesty on his part. Uh, We know, we know that we are wretched people. We know of our failures. We know of our betrayals. We know of our hypocrisy. And so with the Apostle Paul, we too grieve our sin and cry out uh, of our wretchedness. Uh, The Apostle Paul says again, that he is the very least of all the saints. That's in Ephesians chapter 3. 
He says he's a nobody in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 too, we groan being humbled. You see, the, the believer knows the darkness of his or her own heart. And so there is isn't this, this, uh, this element of sadness. There is this sorrow. There are these tears as a result as we continue to fight against sin and take three steps forward, and then we fall back two steps again. Uh, the, the late uh, rector at uh, St. John's Episcopal Church, uh, Father Ralston, once said, I think somewhat tongue-in-cheek, uh, but nevertheless said that when the prayer book revisionists took out the language of miserable offenders, where we confess that we are miserable offenders, he felt like the, uh, uh, the Episcopal Church had lost its way. We are miserable offenders. The prayer book was right, and I think Ralston was right. When that language becomes uncomfortable, we've lost our way. We don't understand the truth about ourselves. The closer we get to God, the more we are aware of our own corruption, our own failure, our own hypocrisy. So James tells us, James 4, 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Thomas Watson, one of the great Puritans, says, while we carry the fire of sin about us, we must carry the water of tears to quench it. Now, granted, this is uh, incomprehensible to the world. As far as the world is concerned, sin is no big deal. Uh, to sin is human, and to err is human, and to forgive is divine, and so uh, we, we shouldn't get so heavy about it. We shouldn't get so concerned about it. God will forgive. God understands. And so there is this, in the world, I think there's this indifference, this uh, flippant attitude, an indulgent attitude toward sin. But Jesus says, the blessed ones are those who weep, who spiritually weep for their sin. And then secondly, terms of uh, who they are. They, they, the blessed ones are those who weep for their personal sin, but they also weep in light of church evils, evils in the church. Jeremiah 9.1, Jeremiah, is, as you will know, refer, is referred to as the weeping prophet. He says there, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He's looking out at the, the condition of, of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, at the time of the Babylonian invasions, and he weeps for the condition of the people of God. He weeps for the nation. He weeps for his people. Uh, the weeping prophet Ezra 10.1, likewise looking at the sin of the people of God, we're told there that he was weeping and prostrating himself. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem weeping over the condition of the people of God. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2, rebukes the Corinthian congregation for their failure to mourn uh, for uh, the notorious sin that was being tolerated in their congregation. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, referring to those who had once professed Christ but were now opposed to the gospel, says, speaks of the many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, 
You know, he couldn't be indifferent about it. He, he couldn't be dismissive of it. Uh, when, when he sees the, the scandal within the, the, within the church, when he, when he sees the unbelief, when he sees the, the idolatry, when he sees apostasy and heresy, he grieves for it. He weeps. Second Peter chapter 2, where Peter tells us of Lot, that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. We'll come back to that in a moment. But when we see in the headlines like we see far too often the evidence of moral failure or financial scandal among the leaders of the church, uh, we ought to weep because of the harm that that brings to the testimony of the church to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, John Calvin, in his debate with the Cardinal Satteletto in 1541, urged uh, the Cardinal to think back to the condition of the, of the early church, the Greek church at the time of Basil and the Latin church at the time of Augustine, and said, look around at the ruins of the church in our day and grieve for what you see. I've been rereading a book by Bradley Longfield about the uh, modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy. It's called the Presbyterian Controversy. And uh, reading that and realizing as you, as you give, uh, read the account of what happened in the PCUSA, the Northern Presbyterian Church, and how that, that, that church went from a, having a a very substantial, very large conservative evangelical uh, majority in the 1920s and how that majority was betrayed by moderate and naive evangelicals and how the end result was Princeton Seminary was reorganized and lost to the liberals and the whole denomination was lost to uh, the liberals. And weep and gnash your teeth when you, when you, when you recognize what has happened uh, to the church. Uh, Machen, J. Gresham Machen, wrote, Christianity and Liberalism, your dead theologian society is reading that book right now. Uh, all you need to know is the title, Christianity and Liberalism. They're two different things. That was Machen's point. They're two different things. You got Christianity on one hand, you got liberalism, theological liberalism, ecclesiastical liberalism on the other side. The liberalism denies the Trinity, they deny the dual nature of Christ, they deny a substitutionary atonement, they deny the virgin birth, they deny the miracles of Jesus. This is not Christianity. And, and, and when you realize that basically all of the mainline denominations, have been lost to that mentality that begins with the denial of the authority of Scripture. And when you look around and you see the bricks and mortar and coin of previous generations who sacrificed and labored to build these beautiful churches and these beautiful institutions, and they're all in the hands of people who put out rainbow flags and believe in a rainbow Jesus, how can you not weep for the condition of the church? So that's what we have here. Henry Van Dyke uh, wrote the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, in which uh, we find, by the way, he was a vehement op 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 
opposer of, of Machen at, at, at Princeton, refused to attend First Presbyterian in Princeton whenever Machen was, was preaching. But he, he wrote the words to the, lang, joy, the song, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, in which you find the line, which, by the way, is why we don't sing this hymn anymore, Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Well, that's just the liberal gospel, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and the infinite value of the human soul. The gospel is gone. Everybody who loves, they're all, you know, they're all, they're all in it together. There's no hell to, to worry about. There's no atonement that's necessary. There's no cross that is irreplaceable. Psalm 137.1, the psalmist says, we, we wept when we remembered Zion. The psalmist looks at the destruction of the people of God. He remembers and weeps as a result. And then thirdly, we weep in light of societal evils. Psalm 119.36, 136 rather, the psalmist says, they're my eyes shed streams of tears because people don't keep your law. No, they don't keep your law. They are dishonoring you. They are blaspheming you. They are worshiping false gods. They are ignoring uh, your moral code. And, and the psalmist looks out of that. And what does he say? He's not indifferent toward that. He can't be dismissive about that. No, my eyes shed streams of tears. Back to righteous, righteous law. Uh, Peter, 2 Peter 2, he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. His righteous soul, Peter tells us, was tormented. He wasn't entertained by it. He, he couldn't just ignore it. He couldn't be indifferent about it. No, he was tormented, he says, by, their, by the lawless deeds that he saw in, and heard in Sodom, Paul in Athens, Acts 17, 16, we're told by Luke that he was provoked when he looked out and saw the sea of idols. He, he, did, he wasn't thinking, oh, well, this is very good. This is, this is good to have religious diversity in Athens. And so here's, here's the examples, all these different gods. Isn't it wonderful that we're such a diverse uh, people? No, he looks at the idols and he grieves for it. He's provoked by it. And Romans 9.1, and again in 10.1, Paul speaks there of his great sorrow and unceasing grief because of the indifference of his countrymen toward the gospel. Jesus, in Mark 3, verse 5, as he's healing on the Sabbath day, looks around at the crowd, angered, grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, he's, he's encountering insensitivity, a harshness, a cruel spirit, and unbelief, and he is grieved when he looks at that. There's this emotional dimension to it. The world, for its part, it, it laughs at that at which it ought to weep. And so you hear and see all the time off-color jokes, double entendres, the celebration of evil. John Trapp, another of the Puritan authors, says the world uh, jeers when it ought to fear. Ecclesiastes 7, 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. 
Why are the wise in the house of mourning? Because they understand what's going on in the world. If you're not somewhat sad about the condition of the world, you just must not know what's going on, frankly. You don't understand. You don't understand the trajectory. You don't know where things are going. You don't know where things have been and where they're heading. And so the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. They're just continuing the party. They're indifferent. It's no big deal to them. So they just continue to party on. What causes the, the wise to, to mourn, oh, that, uh, this, is, this is fun and games for the world. Uh, we're continuing to pursue our comforts and our pleasures. Uh, we're having fun. And the Bible says they're fools. And the fact of the matter is the world cannot sustain its laughter. I wonder if you all noticed in the last couple of weeks that Elmo the little red fuzzy creature from Sesame Street was in the news. It's very, very instructive. Elmo asks, how is everyone doing? He asks that on social media. He gets 13,000 responses. This little fuzzy fictional creature gets 13,000, gets 180 million views. Most of the responses spoke of sadness, anxiety, depression, of feeling unsafe, isolated, misunderstood. One said, Elmo's sorry, but this above Elmo's pay grade. No, Elmo can't fix this. <laughs> and the fact of the matter, neither can anyone else. The world cannot fix this problem. The world cannot sustain its laughter. It cannot sustain its fun. It eventually crashes and burns. I, I think the, the whole Taylor Swift, uh, Travis Kelsey romance has been another example of this. Football fans, fanatical football fans, love for the game was derailed by their romance. Featured, you know, for a matter of a dozen, two dozen seconds in games that are broadcast over three, three and a half hours completely derailed. They are furious about it. Can't sustain the laughter. Colin Coward, the host of the sports talk show The Herd, responded, there's a lot of really weird, lonely, and insecure men out there. He asked, what, what does that say about your life? Well, I think it says a lot about a lot of lives. I think it's just a window. Elmo and the uh, Taylor Swift phenomenon is just a window into where the world is and where the world will always be. The, sim the world simply cannot sustain its laughter. It pretends that life is all about fun and games and pleasure and excitement, but in the end, all its endeavors to that end crash and burn. So what are those who mourn promised? They're promised that their bitter tears will be blessed tears. They shall laugh. That's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who weep, for they shall laugh. Not at the unfolding tragedies that, are, that surround the world in which uh, the blessed ones live. Uh, no, but they will laugh. They will celebrate, and their laughter will be an enduring laughter. It's not going to be this temporary thing that happens out there in the world. And what laughter represents is unrestrained glee. And he's saying that that's going to begin now. 
they will laugh. Why will, why will they laugh? Well, because they know that their sins are forgiven. They wept for their sins, but they know that their sins are forgiven. They know they've been reconciled to God. They know that they have the gift of eternal life. Things are settled. Eternity has been solved. And when that, that realization takes place, there will be unrestrained glee, rejoicing, represented by laughter. So think about arriving in heaven. And you, know, you open your eyes and you're in heaven and you realize it's all true that there is a heaven, that there's a hell, there's a God, and there's a devil. And because, I've, uh, because of faith in Christ, I have been delivered, I am saved, I am eternally with God in Christ. There will be a sense of relief that will come over us. And following that, there will be song and, and laughter and delight in realizing that all of the promises of God will come true. Enormous relief. The writer to, or the Apostle John in writing the book of Revelation speaks of heaven as a place in which there's no more mourning and no more crying. Okay, we cry now, but then we will laugh. So it describes a, a world in which there is no more crying, no more laughing, and where Jesus himself dries the tears of the redeemed. It's instructive. Tears of the redeemed, yes, because that was what was characteristic of their lives. Why? Because they're surrounded by evil. They know that the darkness of their own hearts. They see the darkness in the world. They see the darkness that's invaded the church. And so there's tears. And Jesus dries the tears. And they shed those tears no more. John Trapp, yet another of these Puritans, says, These April showers bring on May flowers. He said that about uh, 350 years before Al Jolson sang that song. And it's been sung many times since. This is something that uh, the godly have recognized. You, yes, you have these April showers. The gray clouds, the gray skies. But what's the result? May flowers. And so even now in this world, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we're reconciled to God, that we have the gift of the eternal life, we're able then, Philippians 4, 4, to rejoice always. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything we're able to give thanks. Philippians 4, 11, we are content in all of our circumstances. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. My joy in you may be full. He imparts these things to us even in this world. Psalm 126.5, we sow in tears, but we reap in joyful shouting. So that brings us to question number three. Question number one was, who are these people? Well, they're these blessed people. They, they, they acknowledge their personal sin. They grieve because of Church evils and societal evils, what are they promised? They're promised that they will laugh. How is this outlook where one is able to laugh, how is that attained where this sustained laugh is entered into? This un unrestrained, uninhibited delight is experienced. Well, I believe that it happens when we see our sin and salvation as God sees them. What does that mean? Well, it's when we see sin as evil and offensive and disordered and dark and ugly and destructive 
the opposite of exciting and desirable and glamorous. And when we see salvation, not as something that's remote, something out there, secondary, vaguely relevant, far off, tomorrow's concern, but rather when, because we've taken the sin part of things seriously and we understand the, 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 what is at stake, uh, th- then we begin to see salvation as crucial, as our first priority, as our top concern, as the most important thing in all the world before all other known or potential concerns. Then we laugh when we experience that salvation. We weep because, we're, because of our understanding of sin, but we laugh when we, experience the, when, we, when we experience the salvation that delivers us from that sin. This happens when we see sin in its true colors. The destructiveness that it causes for families, for marriages, for the children of those marriages, for the, for the destructiveness it brings upon societies with all of the, the crime and violence and nations with wars. And, and when we begin to take our personal sins seriously, we take ownership of our behavior, we all tend to excuse our sin or to minimize it or to explain it away or blame shift. How do we attain this laughter? Well, it means we need to confront the reality and confess, as the confession says, particular sins particularly. Not just vague, yes, I'm a sinner, but particular sins particularly. When, when we understand our own guilt, or again, as the confession in its 15th chapter says, it's uh, true repentance happens when a sinner, out of a sight and sense of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, the sight, you know, you understand, you grasp it, you have the sense of it, of its filth and odiousness, and therefore so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all to God in Christ and receive the forgiveness of your sins. The result then is a flood of joy that spills over into laughter. That's what's uh, being described here. So there's some irony here, isn't there? How is it that weeping leads to, to laughter? Because when we understand the magnitude of our sin, then we understand the magnitude of God's grace to us in Christ. When we understand how lost and hopeless we are of ourselves, and we realize what Christ has done for us in delivering us, it then erupts in this unrestrained glee represented by laughter. So the Christian, the Christian is not uh, a sad and miserable person, even though we weep. Because Jesus gives us his peace and he gives us his joy. But we are fundamentally serious as well as fundamentally happy. Our joy, it's a solemn joy, but it's joy. Our joy is a holy joy, but it is joy. And our happiness is a serious happiness, but it's true happiness, deep happiness, enduring happiness, sustainable happiness because of what God has done for us in Christ as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would not restrain our tears. We pray that they would freely flow as we understand the darkness of our own 
hearts and the guilt brought on by our own behavior. Pray that we would mourn it and grieve it. And as we look out more broadly at the world and the church, we pray that our hearts would be pierced with sorrow for all the harm and suffering and destruction that results. And, O oh Lord, we pray that at the same time that we would rejoice yet with trembling, that we would be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, as the Apostle says, because of the salvation that we have now in this world. Because of the multitude that no one can number that will be brought into this kingdom of laughter. And for the consummation of all things in the kingdom of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.